You're listening to Reality San Francisco's weekly podcast. For more audio content or information, please visit us at realitysf.com. Good evening, everyone. It's been a, a really good time for me. It's been a lot of fun today to spend time with all the different reality services. And I'm a huge fan of everything that God is doing here. Dave has been a huge blessing to me and is a, is a good friend as well. And I just rejoice that we can be brothers and sisters in Christ that are working to advance the gospel in the city. And, and every time that God is working and powerfully moving here, we celebrate and we pray for you guys and we rejoice in it and look forward to looking at all the different ways that we can work together as brothers and sisters, work together as churches. And, uh, and Dave and I have a great time just getting together and, and dreaming and praying and, and hoping for our city and just pray that we can do more and more of that as we go on. Well, we are going to continue the theme that you guys have been doing, and I, I love this series. I've had the chance to listen to a couple of the messages, and we're going to continue it tonight looking at what some of the prophets teach us about this theme of waiting and this theme of Advent. And so if you'll pray with me, we'll get going here. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we do gather here together tonight confident that your presence is with us. We come here tonight, Lord, not because of anything else other than the fact that we want to meet the living God. And we know that not a single soul in here is here by accident, but that we are all here because you are a gracious and loving Heavenly Father. And you have cared for us and brought us into your presence so we can hear your word. So I pray, Lord, that you would help me to faithfully proclaim your word. And I pray for each and every person in here that you would prepare our hearts to respond to your word, both in this message and the time of response that we'll have after. We just thank you, Lord, for the gift of you and your presence, and your desire to see us come into your presence, to know you, and to experience your love. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's been a a great opportunity for you guys, and for us as a church, and me as an individual, to focus on this theme of Advent and this theme of of waiting. And I personally have never been very good at waiting. I I was the kind of kid that would search around the house and, and try to find where my parents had hid the presents, Uh, One year, my brother and I found this sweet basketball hoop that my dad had gotten for us. And then shortly after, my dad figured out that we had found it and took it back to the store. So it's one of my early lessons on on the merits of waiting. Um, I'm still not very good at it. My wife can tell you that. But I think this theme of of waiting, not just on, on small things, but waiting on big things. Waiting on God absolutely, fully, and finally redeeming and restoring this whole universe. Waiting on what it'll be like to be in the, in the full, uninterrupted, untainted presence of Jesus Christ. That's what we're waiting for, and that's what we're trying to cultivate in our hearts during this Advent season. The greatest gift that we can ever be given, any human being can ever be given, is Jesus Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the promised one. And so looking at what the people of God in the Old Testament were doing and in anticipating the incarnation of Christ and seeing kind of how they were encouraged by God, can encourage us here today, and we're going to get to that in a, in a minute here, but just this whole idea of it's good for our souls to wait and to have confidence that God will deliver and to have confidence that God is who he says he is, that God is on his throne no matter what happens. Now, there's so much about the world that we can experience that's good and wonderful, enjoyable things, good food, vacations, great times, but so often there are events in our world like what happened on Friday that remind us that this world is desperately broken. An event like that is just, just, just manifest evil. We have three boys. They're uh, 10, 6, and 2. And my 6-year-old boy is in kindergarten. Happens to be in the first classroom that you would hit if you came into a school. And so looking at the faces, I don't give a rip about the gunner. 
looking at the faces of these kids and, and seeing that their lives were cut short, it's just a, such a present reminder of God's work on earth is not yet done. And, and one of the things that God did in my heart and my soul beginning on Friday as I'm looking at these awful details was put that song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, in my head. The promise that, that God is going to come fully and finally and restore and redeem. That cry of our hearts to, to come, Lord Jesus. Uh, that, that hymn goes on to say, Make safe the path that leads on high and close the path to misery. And that song brought me a lot of comfort as I was thinking about that, and it reinforced the value of this whole Advent season. This whole time that we have to, to celebrate how Christ was born into the world and to celebrate and to get good at waiting now even for Christ to fully and finally be revealed, to redeem and to restore absolutely everything. It's not just important around December, it's important for us as followers of Christ to learn and appreciate this incredible gift that we've been given to let that incredible gift impact absolutely every thought that we have, every action that we have, every day of our lives on this earth can be radically impacted by who Christ is and the fact that he's been given to us. It's an unbelievably amazing and wonderful opportunity to slow down a bit and to think about who Jesus Christ is. So that's what we're going to be doing tonight and looking at the theme of this in in the prophets, as I said. We've been trying to do this as a family as well, and my wife has been doing an Advent reader with our little boys in the morning try to help them understand Advent. It's a great, tries to get the themes in at a level that kids can understand, which I find very helpful. Um, but the theme they did this week was, was shadow and reality. This idea that, that there was, a, in the Old Testament, they were looking forward, um, and it was just a shadow. Christ was revealed. But even now, the New Testament tells us that, that we look through a glass darkly, that, that there is still a shadow that's remaining, and the, and the ultimate and final reality is not yet revealed. That time, as Dave mentioned, of, of the already and the not yet. And so to illustrate this to kids, they were saying, you know, imagine that you were, you know, lost in a supermarket. And I had that experience as a kid. I'm sure many of us did. Lost in a supermarket and desperately searching for your mother. And as you're running down the aisle, you know, and, and fear's kind of settling in and you're worried if, and if you're ever going to find her again and you want someone to comfort you and bring you hope, as you get to the end of the aisle, you, you see your mother's shadow, her distinct shadow, and you know that she's there. And that brings you a measure of comfort that she's right around the corner and she's right in reach. But that level of comfort that that shadow brings is nothing compared with turning the corner and giving your mom a big hug and being fully and finally embraced and knowing that you're back in her arms. That's what God's going to do for us when he fully and finally restores this universe. He's given us the presence of Jesus Christ, our sin, our rebellion, our brokenness, battle against it on a regular basis. But God will one day completely and totally envelop us in his presence, in his love. Shadow will be gone and we'll have absolute reality of his incredible love. So as we look at the theme in the prophets today, the, my main goal for all of us here is to persuade every person in here that this promise, the promise when the Messiah, the coming king, is absolutely priceless. That nothing in this world compares to the value of knowing Jesus Christ. That nothing in this world can compare, nothing in this world is worth trading for having the very presence of Jesus Christ and, and the gift of being adopted into God's family. It, it, this this present that we've been given is worth living life in essence on the edge of your seats in in eager anticipation of him finishing his work here of things on earth finally being truly and fully as they are in heaven so we're going to look first at at how some of the prophets describe waiting and then the second part of the message we're going to talk about how we respond and what this waiting says about us so the prophets did not have easy lives i think sometimes I, i used to do this a lot more 
you look at the prophets and you think of them as kind of religious leaders, as people that were just there and, and they were doing what God called them to do. But you look at the details of their lives, of, of men like Jeremiah, of men like Isaiah, and you recognize that they were ordinary, broken human beings with the same insecurities, with the same fears, with the same every emotional spectrum that we have. And you look at, these guys are, are, some of them went into exile, others of them were beaten, some of them were killed, some of them were thrown in prison. And in the midst of all of this struggle, where they were ministering to from what was having a, a very powerful sense of God's presence. Now the challenge for us is that our world, our culture in particular, defines, most often defines comfort as the absence of struggle. God, from Genesis to Revelation, defines comfort not as the absence of struggle, but finding the presence and peace of God in the midst of struggle. God never promises us that we will not face hard times. He never promises that we won't face challenges from within and from without. But what he does promise us is that we will have his presence throughout the whole thing. We will have his presence in the midst of our distress. And that's what God gives to Jeremiah here. So Jeremiah is at an incredibly stressful time in the text I'm about to read. Jeremiah is seeing the, seeing the kingdom collapse. Jeremiah is singing, seeing kings that were supposed to be faithful turning their backs on the Lord. He's seeing the people of God as he's trying to communicate the truth to them. He's seeing them turn their backs on God and walk away. He is in a time of incredible distress and wondering if everything is ever going to be put right. Will it ever be God? This is what God gives him in Jeremiah 33. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David. And he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. God always promises us his presence in the midst of distress. And what he promises to Jeremiah is not just that a faithful king will someday come in the future to put things right. He promises that he himself will come. That this future leader, this future king will be the Lord our righteousness. Will be the Lord himself down on earth to secure the future for his people. Must have been kind of a mysterious thing for Jeremiah to be sorting through in his head, right? But you can imagine how incredibly comforting it would have been for him too. He's seen kings fail. He's seen priests fail. He's seen prophets fail. He knows the only one that can't fail is God himself. And so God doesn't immediately remove all struggle and all challenge from Jeremiah's life. Jeremiah likely dies in exile in Egypt. He's called the weeping prophet by most scholars. Most of his life was sad. But in the midst of all of his sadness, in the midst of all his distress, God gave him this confidence that one day, the Lord our righteousness, one day I will come as God the Son, and we know that to be the fulfillment, and I will fully and finally restore everything. Daniel, when he was in, in exile and, and facing similar challenges of wondering whether God would ever fully restore everything and wondering what the heck things were going to look like and wondering who could be this person that's going to make things right, human beings fail right and left. How can anyone ever accomplish this? And God gives this vision to Daniel in Daniel chapter 7. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. 
His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Again, this incredible promise. Yes, Daniel, things are broken right now. But the Lord is coming. The Lord himself will restore it. This faithful king you've been looking for, this faithful prophet you've been looking for, this faithful person that could possibly restore things is going to be the Lord himself. Again, probably mysterious and a bit confusing to Daniel. One like a son of man, but guess what? He's coming on clouds and he's being given dominion that only belongs to God. All he could do is step back and just be amazed. Now again, he still had to wait. He still had to be in the midst of distress. He still had to be in the midst of trouble. But he waited with this expectant hope. He waited knowing that God would fully and finally deliver everything. He waited knowing that God had given him a gift so valuable that he could cherish it and live his, live his entire life in light of knowing God was going to do what he said he was going to do. Now, I think for us, when we look at great and big truths like that, the way we respond to them depends directly on how much we think they're worth, on how much we really believe it, on how much we really embrace it. read a newspaper article a while back And it was talking about how a struggling actor in Los Angeles had gone to a garage sale. And he saw a painting that he liked of of some pears. And it was on sale for five bucks. Turns out this painting had been wrapped in a blanket and and stored in someone's garage for three, three or more decades. But he liked it and so he bought it for five bucks. And he hung it on his wall in his kitchen of his apartment and thought it looked great. An art student friend of his came by a bit later and looked at the painting and says, You know what, that looks familiar. To make a long story short, that painting was a misting masterpiece from the 19th century. The sole representation of a particular school of art that that had been lost. The painting went at auction for over a million dollars and hangs in the National Gallery today. See how the, the value of it, the perceived value of it, the understanding of how much it was worth radically changed how people treated it. When when someone thought it was an old piece of crap, they wrapped it in a blanket and threw it in the garage. When a guy thought it would look kind of cool in his kitchen, he paid five bucks for it. But when the true value of this masterpiece was recognized, it went for a million dollars. And it's hanging in the the National Gallery, a place of of utmost centrality in our country. That's what happens. When you recognize the gift that you've been given in the person of Jesus Christ, when you recognize that God's glory has been given to you, you will echo the, 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 the Psalms. You will echo all of the prophets. Psalm 118 tells us that this is the Lord's doing and it's marvelous in our eyes. The book of Revelations tells us that, that Christ's very eyes are like flames and that his face glows brighter than the sun and that all of this power and all this majesty and all his glory has been given to you to bring you into relationship with God himself. That's the gift that God's given you, his very presence, his very self. How much is that worth to you? A lot, right? When we recognize how much that's worth, the place of prominence it carries in our life ought to be immense. It's worth more than a million dollars, and it's worth more prominence than being hung in the National Gallery. God has given you his very self. But we're still in this period of waiting. We look forward and we know that the the glory of Christ will come. We experience it somewhat, but we still are in this position of waiting with expectant hope of crying out to God and asking him to send Christ, asking Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Let's look next at at how we can respond to this, how we're called to wait. The truth is, no matter who you are, you have only just begun to grasp what God has in store for you. Doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian, doesn't matter how short of a time you've been a Christian, doesn't matter if you're in here today and you're trying to figure out what Christianity is all about. By the way, if that's you today and you're trying to sort through the gospel and understand who Jesus is, 
You're here because the almighty creator of the universe loves you and saw to it that you would be here tonight to encounter his word and Lord willing to be adopted into his family. You're not here by accident. All of us today are called to appreciate and to glory in what Christ has given us, to glory in what God has laid before us, to try to more fully grasp who God is. You know these truths, but you were created in God's image. Adam and Eve walked in the cool of the day with God, enjoying perfect fellowship with him. Sin broke that and destroyed it and, and, and tore it asunder. But Jesus Christ is restoring it now. If you're a follower of Christ, God is restoring the image of Jesus in you. God is drawing you into his family. He's adopting you as a dearly loved daughter. He's adopting you as a dearly loved son. He's bringing you into his very family to make you his own. God is giving you his very presence. And we read in scripture that not only is, is, are we created in God's image to be like him, but this idea that we're destined for glory. In the entire Old Testament history, you have this, this picture of the temple. And in the temple, the glory of God dwelled in, in, the, in the, a place that was separated by multiple walls and curtains, a place where only the high priest could go, and then only one time a year. The glory of God was separate from the people. But because of what Jesus Christ has done, that curtain's been rent, and that glory has not just been cast about that glory has been put in you so much so that paul calls us what in first corinthians he calls us temples the very presence of god the sacred dwelling place of the almighty god your bodies have been marked by the spirit your bodies have been taken as god's very possession so that he can give you his spirit to dwell in you richly to empower you and to enable you to show forth the love of jesus in the in this world that's what god's done for us it's the glory of Jesus Christ that rests within us. You are not your own. You belong to him, and he belongs to you. That's his abiding promise to you. Jeremiah 31 is another one of these promises that God was giving to Jeremiah of future restoration. He says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand, to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. I will be their God, and they will be my people. That's what God says to you today. I will be your God, and you will be mine. It's an incredible promise. C.H. Spurgeon is brilliant on this point. He says, stop just one moment and think about what God is saying. In the covenant of grace, God gives himself to you and becomes yours. Understand it. God. All that is meant by that word, eternity, infinity, omnipotence, omniscience, perfect justice, infallible goodness, unconditional love. All that is meant by God, creator, guardian, preserver, governor, judge. All that that great word God can mean. All of goodness and of love, all of bounty and of grace. All that this covenant gives you to be your absolute property as much as anything that you can own, I will be their God. Pause again and think about that. Absolutely stunning. 
If you remember nothing else from today's message, please remember this. God promises that he will be yours, that he is the great inheritance he's given himself to you. That's the gift. That's what's priceless. The, the, the priceless promise that's been given to you is God himself in the person of Jesus Christ. God is dwelling in you and his glory is with you. So much so, and I'll give you one more quote here, there are no ordinary people. We have been made to, to, to be God's image bearers and those that are bearing his glory. God has given himself to us and he's destined us for glory. C.S. Lewis describes it this way. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilization, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is a mortal's with whom we, with whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Think about that for a moment. C.S. Lewis goes on to say that if you were to encounter one of the people in this room that's a follower of Christ, and you were to see a picture of them in glory, it would be so amazing and so glorious that you would be tempted to bow down and worship before them. These ordinary people that are sitting beside you, these people as you look around and look around, these people that, you, that, that might annoy you, these people that, that you might think you're not cool enough to hang out with or you might think that, that you're too cool to hang out with them. These people that you don't think are worthy of your time. These people that you don't spend the time to stop and talk to. Those are the people that are going to be glorious. I see some of you nodding your heads. guess it depends on who you're sitting next to. <laughs> That's what God's given us. God's given us something of immense and incredible value and he wants us to embrace it fully. God has given us his glory, and he's adopted us into his family. He has made you again a dearly loved daughter. He has made you a dearly loved son. He relates to you now on the basis of your identity and your identity alone. He's adopted you and brought you into his family. You're not here today because you're good enough. You're not here today because you slipped in the door and people didn't realize that you're too bad to be here. No, you're here today because God is extending an offer of being in his family. God is adopting you and bringing you in. This is not a calculation where it's, where it's do good, get good, do bad, get bad. This is not a calculation where God says, I'm going to wait and see how you obey, and then I'll tell you how I'm going to relate to you. Now, the calculation here is that, is that Christ did good and God our bad, and that we did bad and God his good in an absolute sense, once and for all. You will never be more loved than you are today. You will never be less loved than you are today because you are loved fully and perfectly by God. And he has sent Jesus Christ, God the Son, to lay his life down for you, to secure you for all eternity, and to give you a sense of, of how important you are to God. God wanted you to be a part of his family so much that Jesus Christ laid his life down for you, experienced all the wrath and punishment of separation from God that, that none of us will ever experience. If you're a follower of Christ, you will never experience separation from God. Jesus Christ has brought you in to his family, and you will be there forever. It's a free gift from God, as Scripture tells us, not by works so that no one can boast. This idea was driven home to me as, as my kids have gotten older, and I'm going to buy gifts for them. My sons, again, they're, they're 10, 6, and 2. And as I'm going to buy gifts in the store, I'm not looking at these gifts and evaluating the size gift I'm going to give my kids based on their obedience, right? I'm not walking down going, the 10-year-old, he's a pretty obedient kid. I like him. I'm going to get him a big gift, right? The middle son, bit of a pain in the butt. 
right? I'm going to get him a small gift. The third son, he's kind of in between somewhere. Maybe I'll get him a medium-sized gift, right? How awful of a dad would I be if I did that, right? There would be no loving. There'd be no grace in that. And yet I've found about myself, and I've been convicted about this over and over again, that I can turn to my loving, gracious, heavenly father, and I can relate to him as though he relates to me in that way, as though his measure of blessing isn't based on my identity, as though his measure of blessing isn't based on the fact that I am his son and in his family and that Christ has laid his life down for me and that he's embraced me and brought me in. No, no, no. His measure of love for me, I can say, is based on how well I obey and how much I impress him with my life. What am I saying by doing that? I'm saying to God, this is ridiculous, but by my actions, I'm saying to God, I am a more loving and gracious father than you are. How awful is that? When you come to God and you think that that you are obeying him to gain his approval, you're approaching him in the wrong way. We obey God because he's already approved us. We obey God because he's radically transformed our identity. Our obedience and our life and our laying our lives down for Jesus is fruit of what he's done for us. And so we can rest fully and finally in his promise. God gives us gifts, he gives us talents, he gives us abilities to draw us closer to himself. God wants to know you. And some of you in here are blessed by God. You've got incredible talents. And you've got financial provision from God. Those are all gifts. God doesn't give you gifts to drive you away from him. Any more than if I gave one of my sons a gift and he said, thanks, Dad, I'll catch you later. Right? And said, I got the gift. I don't need you anymore. No, the gift is, is a sign of our connection. The gift reinforces our relationship. The gift reinforces the mutuality of our love. And so for me or for you or anyone in here to take a gift that you've received from God, and let's be clear, if you're brilliant, it's a gift from God. If your bank account is padded and looking good, it's a gift from God. If you're doing great in your career, it's a gift from God. No matter what it is, no matter what you possess, it's all a gift. And so if you take that gift and say, thank you, God, I'll catch you later, you mistake God's purpose behind the gift. God has given you gifts and he's blessed you to draw you in closer and to enable you to serve his kingdom to enable you to use his rich provisions to lay your life down for others. He wants you to have his heart and he wants you to lay down your life and he wants you to love people in the way that he loves them. He wants you to forgive people in the way that he forgives them. He wants you to be a generous giver in the way that he's a generous giver. That's what it means to be in the family of God. You're a son, you're a daughter. You get to live like him. You get to have his heart and you get to live it out. It's an incredible promise that we've been given. It's priceless. We need to be persuaded of the utter incredible value of this promise that we've been given. The promise when the Messiah that's been given to us, God's very presence. We need to be persuaded that nothing in this world can be compared to the surpassing knowledge of knowing that Jesus Christ is yours. Nothing. But here's our reality, right? How do you view yourself? Do you view yourself as fully embraced by God based on Christ laying his life down for you and nothing else? Do you view yourself as as fully approved by God? Think about this for a moment. God, the almighty creator of the universe, because of Christ's work on your behalf, has fully and finally placed his stamp of approval upon you. Are you willing to throw that away to get approval from a boss? Are you willing to throw that away to get approval from a spouse? Are you willing to throw that away to get approval from a boyfriend or a girlfriend or fill in the blank? So often we are, right? I don't stand up here preaching these things to you, telling you that I've mastered them. I I sure hope you guys can get up to my level. 
right? No. I am preaching these things because God has convicted me deeply of all these things. I stand up here looking at these scriptures and looking at these truths right alongside of you as a broken person that needs Christ desperately, as someone that's striving to obey God from approval and not for approval on a daily basis. But we need to be challenged on a daily basis. Are we waiting? Are we living lives of eager anticipation of the work that God is doing and the work that he's going to do? Are we chomping at the bit to see what God's going to do next? God has done incredible things at reality in in the three-year history, right? It's incredible. What a shame would it be to, 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 to lock the doors and say, great, let's just sustain this. No, man, leverage it. God has given you gifts. Put it into full practice. I'm excited to be in this city with you brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm excited to be seeing the gospel extended in this city alongside of y'all. I'm a huge fan of everything that God's doing here and everything that everyone that's preaching and living out the love of Christ and the gospel is doing in our city and in our world. The challenge is, and we'll finish with this in a bit, waiting can be really hard. Sometimes waiting's not that big of a deal. I personally, again, I told you earlier, I suck at waiting. I will drive 30 minutes around a 20-minute traffic jam just because it feels better to me. Right? I, I'm terrible. We went to Disneyland for two days uh, on Monday and Tuesday with my boys. Disneyland is a place of waiting. Right? It's the happiest place on earth, but it's a place of waiting. And it's a place where I sit there and I find myself in lines thinking like, if they did that more efficiently, I wouldn't have to wait as long. I try to figure out constantly how I can wait less and get what I want now. If I want a particular kind of food, I go out and get it. If I want to buy something, I go out and get it. And our culture tells me that's what I should strive for. Our culture tells you that that's what you should strive for. If you want it, take it, get it. You don't need to wait, go get it. But there are certain things that God wants to do in our lives that take waiting, that take eager anticipation, that take investment, that take a willingness to lay down our lives, to go on our knees and to pray and to pursue him over and over and over again. Because the things he wants to give us, they're not ordinary. They're extraordinary. They're incredible. They're amazing. And they are absolutely worth waiting for. But in our world, we can see things so broken and so evil, like what happened in Connecticut last week on Friday. And it's such an incredible reminder that God's work is not yet done. When you look at that, and I've looked at the faces of these kids that were, that were cut down, that were murdered, whose lives were cut short, the faces of these precious six and seven-year-olds, it's incredible to think. And you look at that and you think, you know what, there's a lot of great and wonderful things in this world, but it is not yet on earth as it is in heaven. Come, Lord Jesus. And until you come, Lord, help me to be someone that represents you here. Help me to be someone that people can look at my life and, and know what the love of Jesus looks like. Help us all to do that in this city. I've had the opportunity over the last year and a half to go to Africa twice, and I'll go again in May, Lord willing. And you see the incredible suffering there, and you see kids that are within a week of their lives being ended because of starvation and because of extreme poverty. And you look at that, and you can think, there's just too much to do, and we can't do anything. That's one response we can have. The other response we can have is, you know what? I can go over there, and I can make the difference in three kids' lives, three dozen kids' lives maybe 300 kids' lives. I alone cannot transform the entire continent of Africa. I alone cannot transform the entire city of San Francisco. You alone cannot transform the entire city of San Francisco. But I can tell you this, as we as brothers and sisters in Christ 
are endeavoring to lay our lives down and to love this city in the way that God loves it, we will begin to see God's love put on display. People in this city will know what the love of Jesus Christ looks like. And God will begin to transform. And God will begin to work in ways that are so powerful. My prayer for each and every one of us sitting in here today is that we would pray big prayers and that we would dream big dreams. That we would ask God to do big and amazing and wonderful things. That our vision of what he wants to do in our lives would not be so small. That we wouldn't settle for career advancement. That we wouldn't settle for a spouse or kids or a house. That we definitely wouldn't settle for a house in the suburbs. <laughs> that we would hold on to more. That we would be here in this city as those that are, that are waiting, as those that belong to him. That are waiting as those that know the end of this story. That are waiting as those that know that the king will come again. Our long-awaited Messiah will step, for, for, uh, step his foot on earth again. And when he does, he is going to fully and finally restore it all. No more sin, no more murder, no more brokenness, no more poverty, no more suffering, no more tears of any kind. That day is coming. God will put all things right. That's the great theme of Advent. God will put all things right. His glory will fully and finally be revealed. May we not shrink it down. I've been really blessed by listening to the messages that have been done in the series so far. Dave's message from two weeks ago I was listening to, and Dave was, was preaching this message about how Christ will come in glory. And I'm typing that into my iPhone, and I'm being challenged by the message, and I type in, Christ will come in glory. And the autocorrects to, Christ will come in Gilroy. And I know we have a brother in the back that's from Gilroy. So my apologies, but, but my vision of glory is not that bad. But it's also not amazing. It's somewhere between what God intends and Gilroy. And what we need to do is spend some time meditating on who God is and what he's done. And on what full restoration is going to look like. On what a world without tragedy will look like. And what a world without hunger or starvation or poverty or any of the horrible things that we see will look like. And our hearts can long for that restoration. And we know Christ in his earthly ministry, when there was brokenness, he went there to heal it. When there was darkness, he went there to bring light. When there was suffering, he went there to bring hope. Wherever there was hopelessness, wherever there was darkness, where there was any kind of suffering, where did Jesus go? Straight to it. We serve a Savior that ran to the brokenness and tried to heal it. My prayer for us is that we would do that in our city. That where we see brokenness, we would run to it. And we would have confidence that God will fully and finally restore everything one day. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, a poet in the 19th century, in the midst of the Civil War, as he's seeing his country torn apart and one of his kids is killed, and he's, and he's hearing Christmas carols, he wrote this poem. I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and wild and sweet the words repeat. Of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said. For hate is strong and mocks the song. Of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail. With peace on earth, goodwill to men. Brothers and sisters, we can have the confidence that the, the, the wrong will fail, that the right will prevail, 
that God will put all things right one day, fully and finally. And until that day, we can be working in our city to see it built. We lived in New York City for about four years, and for a year of that, I went to Tim Keller's church at Redeemer Presbyterian, great church. One of the themes he used to say over and over again, and he especially said this to young professionals, he'd say, look, you folks have either come to the city to pillage or to build. And by pillage, he meant you've come here to build your resumes, to enjoy yourself, to take what you can get, and to leave. And he says, I can't tell you how long God's called you to be in the city, but what I can tell you is if you're a follower of Christ, you're called to build. You're called to lay your life down here. You're called to put the love of Jesus on display here. You're called to work for God's purposes, to work for God's heart. Psalm 68.5 tells us this, Father to the fatherless, champion of the widow, this is God. We should be praying and asking God to give us his heart for this city. We should be believing big and wonderful things about what God can and what God will do here. And we should be working together to see those things accomplished. We are in this period of waiting. We have not yet fully seen what will be revealed, but that expectant hope that we have now, that knowledge that we have that God loves us and that God is with us and wherever we go, we will not be snatched from his hand, that can give us great confidence and assurance to go out in boldness, to love people boldly, to pray that God would enable you to use your talents beyond your ability, to pray that God would enable you to live generously beyond your ability, beyond your budget. To pray that God would be able to do things in your life this year that require faith. I pray very small prayers most of the time. I pray things that I think I know I can accomplish. What kind of prayer is that? My prayer needs to be, your prayer needs to be things that we cannot accomplish on our own. Things that say, God, reveal things to me that I can only dream possible and then help me do them for your glory and for your love. Spent earlier this year studying a lot on, on this theme of adoption and on the love of the Father. Because I believe that when we're confident of God's love for us and we understand how deep and how amazing it is, it will radically transform everything else. When we understand how priceless this promise that we've been given is, this, this promise one, this Jesus Christ, God's love for us will be so amazing it will transform everything. And I'm going to end with a story that, that I got in one of these books. In Armenia in 1989 there was a magnitude 8.2 earthquake that rocked the country and in a matter of four minutes killed over 30,000 people. In the midst of all the muddled chaos, there was a father who bolted down the street to where he had dropped his son off at school that morning. You see, when he had dropped his son off at school, he told him what he told him every morning. Armand, no matter what happens, I'll be there for you. And as he arrived at his son's school, or what used to be his son's school, and it was only a pile of rubble, he sat there in just stunned dismay for a moment. And then he rushed to the eastern part of the school where he knew his son's classroom was. And he began to dig with his bare hands, he began to dig. Just taking up bricks and taking up chunks of concrete and taking up wallboard and flipping them aside. And people would come by and say, Mr., give up, they're dead. And he'd turn around in disgust and say, I, I will never give up on my son. I have promised him that I will always be there for him and I'm gonna dig until I find him. So this man dug. For two hours he dug, for four hours he dug, for eight hours he dug. Can you imagine that? His arms just ripping apart concrete, eight hours, 12 hours, 20 hours, 26 hours, 30 hours. The guy keeps digging. 36 hours and the guy's still digging to find his son. And the 38th hour, as he lifts up this final piece of wallboard, he hears a voice and he cries out, Armand. 
And he hears this, this still quiet voice, Papa. And he digs his son out of there and they, they were able to save 14 kids. And as his son emerges from the rubble and he's facing the other 13 kids that were saved in his class, he says, you see, I told you my dad would not forget us. That's the kind of love that we have from our Heavenly Father. We can have great faith because a great love backs us up. God is with you and will never forsake you. God embraces you in his hand and nothing can snatch you from it. We can wait with expectant hope because we are waiting for a God that has already done amazing things and we are confident that he's going to continue to do amazing things. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can wait now for what you will fully and finally reveal. But I pray, Lord, that as we wait, no matter what distress we are going through, no matter what trouble we are going through, no matter how dim our life seems, that we would be confident of your love for us, that we would be confident that you will meet us, Lord. We don't know the timing on you meeting us, but we know, Lord, that you will fully and finally restore everything. So I pray, Lord, no matter who we are, no matter how we walked in these doors, that we would leave here trusting in Christ and trusting in you, renewed and redeemed and having great confidence in how amazing you are. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.